This show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. Hi, this is Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Walled Garden Podcast. This show belongs to the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. But for now... Let's caretake the gardens of our minds, one meaningful conversation at a time. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Walled Garden Podcast. So as many of you will know, I started a while back this series called Soul Searching with Seneca. I released a few episodes here on the Walled Garden Podcast, but if you haven't already seen, I want to let you know that every single one of the, oh, it must be about 120 plus episodes that I've recorded of that series are now available in a completely separate podcast of the same name, Soul Searching with Seneca. It's in the Walled Garden podcast network. And all you have to do is just search Soul Searching with Seneca in any of your favorite podcast players, and you will find the podcast there. And we are kicking that series off. We've had a bit of a hiatus in the past couple of months. And uh, now we're kicking the series back off, but it's no longer a solo series. I, I recorded that first 120-ish episodes uh, all by myself, you know, focusing on up to, I think, the 35th letter. But now I have a co-host for the show, and I want to tell you about her, and I want to introduce you all to her today. Her name is Judith Stove. Now, how would I describe Judith? You know, Judith... Well, she's a true classicist. And what I mean when I say a true classicist, she doesn't have a formal degree 
in the classics and, uh, you know, she is not a professor at a university. But she is obsessed with the great classic texts of the Western tradition. And she's also a bit of a linguist. You know, she does know uh, the classical languages. She knows Greek. She knows Latin. And she knows it incredibly well. That she did study at university. And, and so talking with Judith about these classic ancient texts, well, it, it just completely opens up the text in a new way, you know, and, and we get so much more out of it. And that's what you're going to hear today. And so in this episode today, uh, we are going to be covering Seneca's 40th letter. And this is a conversation between Judith, myself, and Seneca. And we're going to break this down. So his 40th letter on the proper style for a philosopher's discourse. And as you'll hear in this episode today, it is such a beautiful, fascinating, well-written, beautifully written letter that Seneca gives us here. And so there's so much to take away from it. And I'll be releasing this episode or this recording on this podcast as well as on Soul Searching with Seneca. But I really just wanted to share this with you guys to say we are back into Soul Searching with Seneca. It's happening. Judith and and I are going to be uh, really diving into these texts over the next few months slash years. And uh, we want to invite you to come along and join us in conversation around these letters as well. And so if you'd like to do that, we are kicking off our Soul Searching with Seneca meetups in the Walled Garden this Friday. Uh, And we're going to be focusing on on the same letter that we're talking about today, but we're going to do that with a group. We're going to be discussing these ideas as a group and going even deeper into the text. So as I said, this Friday, the 9th of September at 5.30 p.m. PST, that's California time, we would love to see you there. I'll include a link in the show notes to where you can register for that event. But if you get lost, just go to thewalledgarden.com forward slash events and you can find the link to register there. We'd love to see you come along and enjoy the conversation with other people from around the world who are also soul searching with Seneca. And without any further ado, I present to you this conversation with Judith Stove, myself and Seneca on his 40th letter on the proper style for a philosopher's discourse. Enjoy. All right, Judith, it is awesome to be here with you to talk about Seneca's, uh, oh my gosh, I'm, it's 40, yeah, 40th letter, right? I was, I was thinking the X and the L. <laughs> wasn't 100%, but... I should just mention from the start, so this is really the first episode of what will be many to come where, you know, we are tackling Seneca together now. I've done about 120 of these episodes exploring uh, in depth each letter, but what I'm excited about, Judith, is, you know, your your knowledge of the classics, your knowledge of Stoicism, your knowledge of languages is uh, far superior to mine. And so I think it, it's going to be so much fun, the both of us trying to tackle one letter at a time in each of these episodes over the you know next few months slash years. And we're going to be hosting these meetups in, in the World Garden as well, welcoming people into these discussions. So what we'll hope to do is uh, at the start of the week, we'll release the episode about the letter that we're focusing on, and then towards the end of the week or the following week in the World Garden, we will have the event. Uh, and I'll just quickly mention here that coming up, uh, so this week, uh, we do have 
the Soul Searching with Seneca talking about this letter that we're going to be uh, focusing on today and just opening up that discussion. And that's going to be uh, on September 9th. And so uh, we do have the event on the World Garden webpage for uh, theworldgarden.com forward slash events. But anyway, uh, maybe I should just start by very quickly asking you as well, Judith. Um, I don't think I've ac actually ever asked you this. What was your first introduction to Seneca? When when did you find Seneca? And, and why have you accepted the call to <laughs> do these episodes right until the end of his letters, which is quite a task? Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on as part of this journey, Sam. It's very exciting, as you say. And I was actually going to explain how I came to be reading Seneca with you, in a sense. I, I had been exposed a little bit to Seneca in previous years, but it was in February 2020. My husband and I travelled to Istanbul, and on the plane going over, I developed chickenpox. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, as I self-diagnosed by Google <laughs> in a small flat in Istanbul. So... We were facing an illness in a foreign city. I didn't know how ill I was going to get. I didn't know if my husband was going to get ill. Fortunately, however, I brought some Seneca with me, just grabbed it off the shelf as we left. And it turned out to be the best possible text I could have for that situation because Seneca reminded me that we're all in this situation of radical uncertainty. You know, the illness that strikes at the untoward time, the global pandemic that was about to strike as it then turned out mm. within weeks. And just in a, in a couple of days, I realised I wasn't actually that ill. I, I could, I was a bit feverish and tired, but we could get out and get around. And so, but I, I, I had already accepted that situation and that was Seneca's gift to me. And I felt that that was a great premonition and preparation for what was to come for the next two years. You know, the situation of radical uncertainty that we all found ourselves in on a, on a global level. So that's partly what the set, what the stories can bring us. And to me, that's what Seneca brought me in that situation. Yeah. I love that. Do you remember the specific letter that you turned to or? Uh, look, it was, it was not a specific letter. It was, it was a, it's a collection translated by Moses Adas in the fifties. So it's a quite an eccentric little uh, selection that he made. Oh, that but sounds just, awesome. I went through the, yeah. I went through the whole book. There's a, there's the Constellation of Helvia is in there. There's some of the letters. Beautiful. There's a few of the other works. So it was perfect for the situation. Yeah. And that brought me, brought me back into studying Stoicism properly and, and more seriously than I had done to this point. And, and that's brought us to this situation here. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And, and I mean, Seneca to me seems like, yeah, what, what's, what's, well, okay. Okay. Let me put it like this. What I love about you and I doing this together now is, as I said, you know, on top of your knowledge of the classics and languages and all this sort of stuff, but um, you've just pointed out the very practical side of, of Seneca, which is that, you know, you just diagnosed with, uh, you said chickenpox, is that right? Uh, yeah. yeah. And and I need some advice right now. And and oh my gosh, you know, Seneca is so perfect for that. He He really, like, you can turn to his writings any page and you'll find something. That, that is very uh, actionable or uh, very, very practical for our lives. And then uh, on the other side of that, myself as an artist and as a young artist trying to awaken that part of myself, I find so much joy in Seneca because he is such a profound thinker and there is something for the, the he delves into the lofty. <laughs> You know, the the really high principles of the Stoic philosophy, and and on top of that, as as I said, as an artist, he 
he has such a beautiful well i think seneca is an artist in a way in the way that he lived his life you know there's that great bukowski poem where he says that style is everything you know style is everything and seneca had style like his writings are beautiful and that's something that is very very hard to achieve and so he inspires me every single day and and has inspired me as an artist to focus on beauty focus on the goods of the soul that bring us closer into a relationship with the divine that is so clearly within each of us and around all of us all the time and uh but that's probably hearkening too far ahead to our next letter that we're going to be focusing on on, on the god within us right uh but this letter today, so this is letter number 40. I'm going to find it in here. Now we're both reading from the we're both reading from the same translation, right? The uh the um Richard Montgomery or uh, Gummy, I think. I, and I think it's oh, yeah, the that's same right. Yeah, it? Gummery. Yeah. I, I've got the lerb actually open on my other screen. So it's got the Latin on the left and the English on the right, but I'm pretty right. sure it's the same translation. Oh, you've got two. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. We're working from the same. And that's that's what's so cool as well. I I actually spoke to um, I spoke to David Feidler, and I mentioned that I want to start focusing on languages in the World Garden as well. And I said to him, my suspicion is that just for the general public and even for myself, what we should focus on is uh, uh, just vocabulary. You know, let's let's focus in on words that can help to open up a philosophical text to you. You know, the grammar I know is important for translators, but he he tended to agree with me that um, we want to focus on specific words that can just completely expand your understanding of a particular philosophical school. And so what I'll ask you, Judith, is as we go through that, these letters, if there are any words that you think we really need to dive deep into that, you know, just to understand this properly, throw it out there. And I'm so glad that we have the Latin too. 100%. Yeah. Um, well, how do you think we should run these? Cause we want to try and get through a whole letter each time. Um, should we perhaps, uh, maybe just read in, uh, in paragraphs? Uh, sure. I, I'm happy to do one section at a time. They're nicely numbered here in the text. So if you right. want to start sec section one, Simon, and we'll go from sure. there. Sure. Now I have to say one terrible thing about the Loeb is that it numbers the verses in the Latin, but it doesn't give me the verse numbers in the <laughs> in the English. So I'm going to be guessing here, but I'll read a paragraph and, and I'll stop and we'll see where we go. So, so this is, uh, oh, here we go. I've already got the wrong, the wrong letter. Here we go. On the proper style for a philosopher's discourse. I, I, I just think it's so perfect that we, we're starting kicking off again with this letter. So it says, I thank you for writing to me so often. For you are revealing your real self to me in the only way you can. I never receive a letter from you without being in your company forthwith. If the pictures of our absent friends are pleasing to us, though they only refresh the memory and lighten our longing by a solace that is unreal and unsubstantial, how much more pleasant is a letter which brings us real traces, real evidences, of an absent friend for that which is sweetest when we meet face to face is afforded by the impress of a friend's hand upon his letter recognition i'll stop there yeah that's such a beautiful paragraph isn't it mm. and it it actually got me thinking about what form these letters would have taken so i suspect that 
they would have been written on papyrus, a papyrus roll. And I'm wondering if Lucilius actually wrote them in his own hand or if he dictated them to a slave secretary. That's possibly more likely. Mm. And so I was wondering what, what this impress is that Seneca's referring to. You know, he says he gets that shock of recognition. Maybe it's Lucilius's wax seal or something like that. But it, it reminded me, and, and you're probably too young to, well, definitely too young for this era, but when I was when I was growing up, you know, most personal communication was by hand. You would get that shock mm. of recognition when you'd see your friend's handwriting appear on a letter in the post. And so that's, I think, what Seneca's talking about here is that that um, that pleasant shock of recognition at seeing a, a real piece of something that's been under your friend's uh, hand or has a real direct connection to, to them. Mm. Is, mm. is that the impression you got from this section? I think so. I mean, I just think it's beautiful that he, well, I, I, as I said earlier, I like to focus on the beauty of Seneca's work and I just love, I love the sensibility with which he writes and, and, and the fact that he even thinks it's important to point out, Hey, you know what? I feel as though you're here with me. I'm getting something out of this letter. You know, this is bringing you closer to me. It reminds me of, uh, I listened to this lecture of this guy who was talking about um, uh, Trials Engberg Peterson's work on Paul and the Stoics yes. and how what Paul was trying to do when he was writing his epistles was literally to transfer the spirit that he felt within himself through the words, through the, the you know, the pen and the paper to, or the, the scroll to, to the people who read it. And it got me thinking when I read this first, uh, this first little passage here, how I wonder how long it had been a custom to write letters to one another. I mean, emails are a new thing for us, and that just completely changed the game, you know, in some good ways, in some bad ways, you know. Uh, but how long at this point had it even been possible or uh, how many people in the culture could actually do what Seneca did? Because I just remember, I remember uh, Jordan Peterson pointing something out at one point where he said, like, people don't realize that even just reading without speaking, reading in our minds is something that really hasn't been around for a long time. And I just, do we know what it would have felt like, like you say, to get, to get a scroll, to, to, to see that, you know, that wax, to, to see that and to, to feel this is an incredible new technology you know, I, I don't know, like maybe I'm veering way off track here, but I just wonder how how special that would have been. I don't think you're off track. I think it's totally relevant. And I think um, because we are embodied creatures, right, <laughs> this this physical aspect of, uh, of connection and contact is absolutely key. Yeah. Um, as for the historical point about the, uh, how long how long humans have been communicating by letters, well, uh Pretty much, I think, you know, as long as we've got records of civilization, certainly there mm. are extant records from Egypt, um, I believe from Mesopotamia, so a very mm. long time. Yeah. Um, but also if we think about, you know, a, a physical object that's been associated with someone uh, such as a saint, that's something also that has that physical mm. charge from someone who's some, who may have been long deceased, you know. These physical um, evidences, these notas, veras notas, as Seneca puts it, are absolutely key to our connection with people, whether they're distant friends or people long long in the past. I love it. And now I've got a question for you. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Are, are Seneca's scrolls, letters, 
are they in a in an archive somewhere like or or have we only got translations there would be no um extant surviving letters or I, I really actually we should look we should have we should have a whole session on on the manuscript history of, of Seneca's letters but um no we would only have transcriptions uh yeah. and probably not that early ones either uh, but well, I'll look into it. Leave, it. leave that one with me. Yeah, <laughs> look, look, maybe we'll get the keys to the Vatican vault one day. Maybe there's something in there. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, well, maybe uh, do, you, do you want to maybe read the next paragraph oh. then? And Yeah. So you write me that you heard a lecture by the philosopher Serapio when he landed at your present place of residence. He is wont, you say, to wrench up his words with a mighty rush and he does not let them flow forth one by one, but makes them crowd and dash upon each other. For the words come in such quantity that a single voice is inadequate to utter them. I do not approve this in a philosopher. His speech, like his life, should be composed, and nothing that rushes headlong and is, and is hurried is well ordered. That is why in Homer, the rapid style, which sweeps down without a break like a snow squall, is assigned to the younger speaker. From the old man, eloquence flows gently, sweeter than honey. It's beautiful. Um, Isn't it? I, I, the reason I said that this is, that so often Seneca comes to me at the right time in the right place. The fact that we're focusing on this letter today because I've been thinking the past few days that my speech has become somewhat rushed when I'm talking about philosophical topics or when I'm interviewing and trying to get a question out, you know, really want to ask. And I've been thinking about this because it's kind of a sign of a chaotic mind. You know, you haven't got things in order. You're trying to rush or, you know, I often find myself because I'm trying, so often I'm spending time thinking about very lofty topics uh, that I cannot fully articulate, but have somewhat of a picture of when I end up trying to articulate them. Sometimes I'll rush into the idea because I'm so excited about it. I've got to get this out. And then I find myself wandering into dead ends. And that's why when, when I saw this here, that he said, uh, uh, the words come in such a quantity that a single voice is inadequate to utter them. You know, sometimes I genuinely feel like that, like I'm rushing into a sentence and then there's a dead end because I just, my mind hasn't caught up with my mouth in a way. And so this is just so perfect because I'm trying to become a better speaker, a better teacher, a better mentor, uh, a better everything when it comes to my speech. And uh, Seneca speaks so beautifully about how we can do that. 100%, yeah. Um, and it's and you mentioned earlier about the artistry of Seneca. Well, this paragraph is, is a pure piece of artistry. And I'll just draw our attention to some of the language which he uses in the Latin. So in the sentence that uh, that Seneca has, oh, that's right, where he gives his own judgment, he says, I do not approve of this in a philosopher. So in the Latin, that, that is, hoc non probo in philosopho, cuius pronunciato quoque, sicut vita, debet esse composita. Uh, so I don't approve of this in a philosopher whose, whose speech, just like his life, should be orderly. Um, mm. And if nothing's orderly, and, he, and this is where Seneca's language is amazing. He says, quod praecipitator et properat. There's those put sounds and those tut sounds and those ur sounds, which are, which are indicating like the, um, the stones rushing down a scree. That's the kind of the 
um, audio impact of those uh, consonant sounds in the Latin. Isn't it brilliant? It's oh, just amazing. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and then the yeah. <laughs> and then we go into the contrast where he at the end of the passage where he's uh, saying that that's more suitable or the, the rushing style is more suitable to the younger, inexperienced speaker. But for the older character, uh, he says it should be lenis et mele dulcior seni profluit. And they're those um, all sounds, those yeah, gentle, yeah. soft, uh, much more pleasant, really, much more um, thoughtful, much more considerate in this, it, that's more appropriate to an older person. So even in his choice of... Um, vowels and consonants Seneca is teaching us something yeah that's intense <laughs> that's, <laughs> wow yeah that's so beautiful yeah it's 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 a and that's why I love the epistle I, and that's why I try to distinguish between the epistle and perhaps a standard letter even you know there's there's something about it um that is I don't know, you know, he's really, he's, he's painting such a beautiful picture in here with his words. Um, that's, that's wonderful. I'm going to read uh, a couple of paragraphs here. So he goes, therefore mark my words, that forceful manner of speech, rapid and copious is more suited to a Montbank. I don't actually know what that is. Can you just, what, what are we talking yeah, about? Here? It's, 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 um, the word in Latin is a circolans, which means like a traveling showman. That's the idea. It's a it's a carnival performer, someone who goes around right. performing. <laughs> uh, that may, see, that just opens up the text to me there. That's great. I'll, I'll start again. So he says, therefore, mark my words, the forceful manner of speech, rapid and copious, is more suited to a Montbank or you know, circus man uh, than to a man who is discussing and teaching an important and serious subject. But I object just as strongly that he should drip out his words as that he should go at top speed. He should neither keep the ear on the stretch nor definite. For that poverty-stricken and thin-spun style also makes the audience less attentive because they are weary of its stammering slowness. Nevertheless, the word which has been long awaited sinks in more easily than the word which fits pa flits past us on the wing. Finally, people speak of handing down precepts to their pupils, but one is not handing down that which eludes the grasp. Besides, speech that deals with the truth should be unadorned and plain. This popular style has nothing to do with the truth. Its aim is to impress the common herd, to ravish heedless ears by its speed. It does not offer itself for discussion but snatches itself away from discussion. But how can that speech govern others which cannot itself be governed? May I not also remark that all speech which is employed for the purpose of healing our minds ought to sink into us. Remedies do not avail unless they remain in the system. Oh, there's so much good stuff there. I'm going to let you take it away for that. <laughs> sure. So... Uh, you, you drew attention to that word about the mountebank, and it's not some—it's not a word that's current. But when we get the idea, this is somebody who's who's on tour. They perform. They're just showing off, essentially. Mm. That's what that style is more suited to. Um, but also, Seneca tells us he doesn't like a stilted, hesitant style. Mm. Um, and he has that interesting image where he says he the 
the ear should not be either under tension or overwhelmed by the sound. So it's kind of, there's a lot of things to try and avoid, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, like I'm horrified when I'm reading this because like he's saying, go go faster, go slower. And I'm trying to get like the, the right pace for reading. I don't know if I ever told you this, um, but I, I, I was always horrified to read in front of people when I was growing up. And the very reason is I had a, a class at church one day when I was very young and I had one of those teachers who was, he was not a great guy to teach kids. He was just, you know, too, too negative, you know, a bit of a kind of bully type of person. And I was already very nervous to read and I knew that I was going to have to read the word Gentiles. And in my mind, I was saying, do not mistake this word for genitals. <laughs> and all I could think of up to reading that word was don't say genitals. And I read it and I was very young. And this is in front of a class of people who were reading the Bible, you know, and, and, you know, there was laughter. It was just one of those moments that I think, throughout the rest of my life, it made me horrified of reading out loud. And so you'll see that as we go through here, I've, I've worked on it. But nonetheless, the, the, the point that I think is really interesting out of these past few lines is he also gives us uh, a sense of how we should, uh, how much weight we should put on the type of discussion we're having. It's a philosophical discussion. It's important, which means that it needs to be spoken with importance it needs to leave room for discussion for questions there needs to be a considerate approach when we are discussing these things this isn't something you don't just go out there and scream philosophy to the world you invite listening ears and 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 you keep them there with 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 you know well-meaning and 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 an appropriately styled conversation i just love that because that is philosophy it's it's the most important thing that we could possibly talk about, especially if it's going to lead to a more meaningful or richer or a, a, a more beautiful life. So I just think it's important, you know, even the things that he's telling us not to do, we'll look in between those lines. And there's also ways that he's telling us that we should be speaking about this particular topic of philosophy. Very true, Simon. In fact, he says, he, he makes that that very point that the, that the very fast um, speech doesn't offer itself for discussion. It's kind of evading discussion. And you do get that sense occasionally. There are some people, for instance, on YouTube who do speak particularly fast. And while the time, by the time you're digesting what they've said, they've moved on. So you're not, there is no opportunity to um, pick up what it is really, what is really being said or what's important about it. So yes, this offering up for discussion is key. And that's that's one of the wonderful things that we're able to do in this context is, is discuss and, and discuss the ideas. As you say, it's all about the serious nature of what we're doing um, requires a serious approach. I think it's also important to note his medical imagery at the end of that um, section, which he actually goes on in the next section to, uh, to develop that image a bit. So his last sentence in the section you read, he says, um, the purpose of healing, of speech which is employed for the purpose of healing our minds ought to sink into us. Remedies do not avail unless they remain in the system. So that's a very interesting um, medical kind of image. And then he, um, his next section here, I might just go on to read that. He says, besides this sort of speech, and that's, that's the fast speech again, contains a great deal of sheer emptiness, 
it has more sound than power. My terrors should be quieted, my irritation soothed, my illusions shaken off, my indulgences checked, my greed rebuked. And which of these cures can be brought about in a hurry? What physician can heal his patient on a flying visit? May I add that such a jargon of confused and ill-chosen words cannot afford pleasure either. No, but just as you're well satisfied in the majority of cases to have seen through tricks which you did not think could possibly be done, so in the case of these word gymnasts, to have heard them once is amply sufficient. For what can a man desire to learn or to imitate in them? What is he to think of their souls when their speech is sent into the charge in utter disorder and cannot be kept in hand? Just as when you run downhill, you cannot stop at the point where you had decided to stop, but your steps are carried along by the momentum of your body and are borne beyond the place where you wish to halt, so this speed of speech has no control over itself, nor is it seemly for philosophy, since philosophy should carefully place her words, not fling them out, and should proceed step by step. It's funny, on one, on one hand, I find myself saying Seneca often goes on a bit to, to really push a point, you know, like he's, he's basically saying the same thing here. Hold off. Don't, don't go too fast. I love that analogy of, you know, like the feet kind of get ahead and and the momentum, but, but in another sense, even though he's pushing the same point, he's doing it in different ways. And he's point he's, he's pointing at all of these directions. Here's why, here's why, here's why. And I love this part up here. Well, what I love is I'm actually going to go back to that part where you kind of kicked off in, in the last sentence from the last section. I think it's important to recognize that what we're dealing with here in, in dialogue, or you can probably speak to this more like the dialogos sort of element of what we're doing. We genuinely are trying to cure our souls and philosophy is curative in the most real sense possible, because if you can change uh, the 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 problem at the source, you know, your internal world. How do you think about things? How have you got greed? Have you got lust? Have you got too much ambition for these things that really aren't going to bring you any satisfaction or happiness? You know, as he says here, we're trying to cure that, and that takes time. And I just think it's really important that we, as philosophers, make sure that people realize that philosophy and genuine quiet conversation around these topics is absolutely curative. It's the best cure you could possibly find, you know, for, for these ills in our life. So I don't know, that's, that's what I love about that section. Yeah, it, it really is. And that um, in section five, he uses these very dramatic uh, words. He, my, my terror should be quieted. My irritation soothed, my illusion shaken off. So he's, he's, He's posing the, the philosopher as, and remember, this all came about because Lucilius had heard the philosopher Serapio. So what Seneca is saying is, is, as a philosopher, this is what Serapio should be doing. He should be um, making you not making you less afraid, making you less greedy, making you less self-indulgent. That's what Serapio should have been doing. And the style of his speech. And, his, and, and the rushing of it all meant that that was far less likely. And I thought it was wonderful that he brings in this idea of um, what physician can heal his patient on a flying visit. Now, obviously, the length of consultations with doctors is an issue that's still with us today. And, of course, yeah. also with, with um, psychological and psychiatric help, that's also an issue. You know, people don't get long enough to, to consult with somebody uh, about what's 
what's troubling them in their soul or in their life. So Seneca makes a point that's also very valid in the real world situation of um, what we would normally think of as, as medical treatment, but he's he's trans, transferring that to the soul. And of course, you know, these transformations that we're seeking through philosophy don't happen straight away. They need time. They need to, to bed down um, in, our, in our conscious and unconscious being. Mm. So I think, yeah, there's a lot there to think about in terms of, um, and, and I guess that also comes back to our project. You know, it's a long project working through, <laughs> working through these letters, but that's okay because these things do take time and they certainly take time to do properly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a, such an important point that it's, it's almost like you're focusing on that kind of philosophical question of what is the right aim in this situation? Is it the speed? And so we've got these kind of perverted incentives today or perverted structures around the way that we think about what is appropriate. And it's it's funny, you know, because I've been doing this philosophical mentoring for a few years and for I'd say for about three years, it has been my policy. I don't know exactly how I came to this decision, but my policy is so long as I don't have a session immediately booked after our call right now, I'm never going to say, hey, time's up. We've got to go. Can we talk about this next week? It The conversation always has to end in a natural uh, natural place. You know, there needs to be no rushing because what we're talking about here is the matters of your soul and how horrifying to think that, oh gosh, we've got five minutes left on this call. We better rush this. You know, no, we're talking philosophy. Uh, so it doesn't matter if we go for one or two hours. It's like we're dealing with vital matters here. And so philosophy always calls us to ask, what is the really important thing here? Let's focus on that. The rest will take care of itself. You know, I think it's it's just um, it's interesting to think about that in the context of especially this new service that we are trying to uh, to work through in the, in the walled garden. But now we're so we're on to the next page now. So uh, let me dive in here. He says, "What then?" You say, "Should not philosophy sometimes take a loftier tone?" Of course, she should. But dignity of character should be preserved, and this is stripped away by such violent and excessive force. Let philosophy possess great forces, but kept well under control. Let her stream flow unkept, oh, sorry, uh, unceasingly, but never become a torrent. I'll read that again because that's such a beautiful sentence. Let her stream flow unceasingly, but never become a torrent. And I should hardly allow even to another orator a rapidity of speech like this, which cannot be called back, which goes lawlessly ahead. For how could it be followed by jurors who are often inexperienced and untrained? Even when the orator is carried away by his desire to show off his powers or by uncontrollable emotion, even then he should not quicken his pace and heap up words to an extent greater than the ear can endure. I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier. Sometimes you're listening to something on YouTube and you just can't keep up because that you know, they, they've got all the thoughts in line, <laughs> but what's this really about? Is it about showing off or is it about actually transferring that wisdom or that spirit through the screen, through the microphone, through the pen, whatever it is to the person that you're trying to get to? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, we have the luxury of being able to go back and replay, <laughs> but of course they didn't in antiquity. I'd also point yeah. out with this section on um, public speaking. So um, the elder Seneca, Seneca's father, wrote a lot about public speaking. And, and so I think the younger Seneca was exposed to these ideas and these theories of, of what's the best way to, to speak um, very early on. And uh, But he points out that even in a, it's really important in a courtroom setting, you know, if you're trying to appeal to a jury, you need to be able to be understood by a jury who might mm. not be very experienced. So that means you've got to be, um, you've got to be considered, you've got to be clear, and you've got to be careful. Mm. Uh, and, and he says it's a risk when the, the speaker wants to show off and when he's also carried away by his own emotions. So those are two more of the risks that we can face in that setting. Yeah, especially a court setting. I mean, it's like yeah. people's lives are on the line, especially back then. Uh, you just gave me an idea, though. Like, I think it's so interesting that we're talking about when you're engaging in philosophical dialogue. Here are some good general rules for how how fast, how slow, how you know the importance that you should put on on your words, the the, the way that you're going to approach this. I'd love to take this letter and break it down into a few core principles that he's giving us and even put together a post on, on the World Garden that gives us something digestible to look at to say when we're engaging in philosophical dialogue in the World Garden, whether it's in our events, our meetups or mentoring, whatever it is, here's a few general good rules of thumb for that. I, I should should do that because I think it'd be helpful. I think it'd be great, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, so where are we? So we're up to, yeah, so yeah you'll be acting rightly. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be, it's section 10 now. You'll be acting rightly, therefore, if you do not regard those men who seek how much they may say rather than how they shall say it. And if for yourself you choose, provided a choice must be made, to speak as Publius Vinicius the stammerer does. When Astellius was asked how Vinicius spoke, he replied, gradually. It was a remark of Geminus Varius, by the way, I don't see how you can call that man eloquent why you can't get out three words together. Why then should you not choose to speak as Vinicius does? Though, of course, some wag may cross your path, like the person who said, when Vinicius was dragging out his words one by one as if he were dictating and not speaking, say, haven't you anything to say? And yet that were the better choice. For the rapidity of Quintus Haterius, the most famous orator of his age, is, in my opinion, to be avoided by a man of sense. Haterius never hesitated, never paused. He made only one start and one stop. Now, this is quite this is quite a technical section, I guess, yeah. with all kinds of all kinds of names of people we're we're not really acquainted with, and I must say I find it a little bit puzzling. Um, and I, I'll be interested to see what you think of this. So this Publius Vinicius nicknamed the stammerer, I guess. Well, we would we would say these days someone with a, a speech impediment. Mm. But I think what Seneca's implying is that even someone who spoke as slowly as that was actually better than this far more overconfident, over-rushing style. Is that the impression you got as well? Yeah, I mean, I obviously... I'm not going to have as much of an insight into this as you because, um, you know, you can see the Latin here and everything. But yeah, I think that that's the sense that I get. I think there's also, it seems to me, there's a little bit of humor in here as well. 
uh, you know, that kind of you know, say, haven't you got anything to say? You know, he's, he's, he's kind of, um, I don't know, just playing around a little bit. But again, I, I go back to my previous point of at some stage, you kind of sometimes get the feeling that Seneca is beating the, the, the dead horse sort of thing you know <laughs> he's finding more and yeah, more ways possibly. to say the same thing uh, but, but nonetheless we we get the point you know <laughs> yeah and, and it's also important to remember too I guess and in, in a society with no recordings public speaking was a very specific art and it was part of the the normal learning process for someone like or someone like Cicero who was going to go into the law um, even someone like Seneca who didn't practice law but who became active in the imperial world, it, it was a key skill for, for people in all kinds of walks of life to have. So I think, again, and you're right to identify the, the humour element as well, but also Seneca's demonstrating his own um, competence, I guess, in, in this field of endeavour and almost implying, well, he could have been, <laughs> if, if he'd chosen to go down that path, maybe he could have been as great an orator as Quintus Heterius. Um, this, I did look up this Heterius, by the way, he was, he was very well known, and um, uh, the great historian Tacitus wrote an obituary of Quintus Heterius uh, and said that, um, oh, and sorry, there's one other thing to say about Heterius. Mm. Even the Emperor Augustus said um, Heterius was someone who needed a break in his, uh, in his speech. So he's another of these rapid speakers. And apparently yeah. after Heterius's death, um, Tacitus said that that particular style died with him. So maybe there's an element of fashion in these things as well. Maybe that it was a bit of a fashion at that time to do this very rapid speaking, and maybe it kind of went out after that. That's an interesting point because certain styles of speaking do come in and out of fashion, obviously. Uh, I often think at the moment if the Stoics could see how dumbed down the general speech of the public has become and even of politics and you know which, which is to be an orator you know like uh, i think that they would be just disgusted <laughs> and and very worried for humanity um but you talk about these styles of speech that come in and out of out of you know out of style one of the styles of speech that actually awakened my mind and got me on the philosophical path was actually the crazy like loud american motivation speak speaker uh his name's eric thomas that's a very specific style of speaking that he has his whole style of speaking is basically i'm gonna get in there and i'm gonna yell at you for like half an hour to 45 minutes and by the end of that you just you're alive you're awakened there is some there is power to it now would i go to eric thomas for a uh a, 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 an in-depth discussion on a particular philosophical matter no he's not that there's a reason they call him like the hip-hop preacher or that he's a motivational speaker that's what they do their job is to motivate okay that's one thing philosophical philosophical speech the the goal is not to motivate uh that's just you know that might be a natural effect of what you learn in that speech, but that is not the the end goal. And so I think it's important to to also just think about well, what are the styles of speech that are around today and and which style do I prefer for which aim? Political speech, we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> no. I'm, I'm on a bit of a political speech uh, trip at the moment and there's some <laughs> wild stuff happening, but I'll I'll start reading the next part. Okay, so he says, 
However, I suppose that certain styles of speech are more or less suitable to nations also. In a Greek, you can put up with interesting in the Greek. In a Greek, you can put up with the unrestrained style, but we Romans, even when writing, have become accustomed to separate our words. And our compatriot Cicero, with whom Roman oratory sprang into prominence, was also a slow pacer. The Roman language is more inclined to take stock of itself, to weigh and to offer something worth weighing. For, oh, what is that? Fabianus. 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 Okay. A man noteworthy because of his life, his knowledge, and less important than either of these, his eloquence also, used to discuss a subject with dispatch rather than with haste. Hence, you might call it ease rather than speed. I approve this quality in the wise man, but I do not demand it. Only let his speech proceed unhampered, though I prefer that it should be deliberately uttered rather than spouted. Yeah, that's a really interesting paragraph. And and we're talking about styles and fashions. Well, into that mix, Seneca brings um, nationality and, and language. Um, yeah. So he's comparing... What, sorry, I've just lost my page here. I'll just go back. He's comparing what's what's possible in Greek and what's natural in Latin, and and this is kind of part of the Roman self-image, I guess. You know, they they thought of themselves as far more serious, um, far more, yeah, just more weighty, I guess, than the Greeks. But also, Latin is that is that more much more that kind of a language than Greek is. Greek is far more conversational. It was Latin that became the language of science for, for you know, nearly 2,000 years because it is appropriate for analysis. It's appropriate for weighty matters. Mm. And this uh, Fabianus, I looked him up as well. Uh, he was a speaker and philosopher of the first half of the first century of the Christian era. And appropriately for this context, he also wrote a lot about science, as, of course, did Seneca. So um, he's making the point that Latin is appropriate for serious subjects. Mm. Uh, but and it, this final couple of sentences in that passage you just read, Simon. Again, there's there's comparison or sort of comparisons being made that we might not necessarily even fully get the gist of. So um, that section where he says, uh, for Fabianus used to discuss a subject with dispatch rather than with haste. Well, what's and and the, in the Latin that is um, disputa about expedite magus quam concitate. And it's kind of a bit hard to see the difference between those two things. It's like he's making this really fine distinction. Um, I suppose the distinction is with, with dispatch means efficiently, whereas with haste means a bit all over the place. I guess that's the distinction. And, again, mm -hmm. that's something that um, almost Seneca is saying, well, the, the hasty bit, that's a bit more like the Greek, whereas the efficiency, well, that's the Roman thing. Um, so he's yeah. making all these comparisons in this um passage and finally in that very last section um, I prefer that it should be deliberately uttered rather than spouted <laughs> so the word for spouted there is profluat and that means um spurting forth like a leaky pipe basically 
which is precisely how I describe what I was talking about at the start, where I said this applies to me because sometimes I'm just like a leaky hose and it just starts spouting out. And I find myself, it's just, you know, it's, yeah. Yep. <laughs> like just then. Yeah, he's he's going to have me. Seriously, any discussion now, it's just going to be Seneca in the back of my mind. You're like, get the right speed, get the right tone, get the right level of importance here. You know, like, don't spout. <laughs> That's right. All right I think so it's very I... important that you you point this out, though, the difference between uh, what well, he's pointing out, the difference between the Roman and, and, and the Greek. And I have to ask you a question, Judith. I've got a quite a intense idea that I'm trying to think about here because the Bible is written or the New Testament is written in this Koine Greek, which as I understand is kind of the language of the common people at the time. It was, it was maybe what you would consider the general vernacular of our current time is a little bit dumbed down. Um, and I wonder, Seneca probably would have understood and spoken and written in Greek as well, right? Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah. just just quick digression. In this period, everyone in the Roman Empire, pretty much, would have been they would have been basically trilingual. So whatever their local language was, so Aramaic in some parts, um, they would. But most people in in um, in the Holy Lands would have been also competent, maybe not fluent, but competent in in Koine Greek and Latin as well, because it was just part of life. You know, it was. A, it was a bilingual society for Greek and Latin, but also in the local languages. So yeah, hundred yeah, percent. So Seneca would have been fluent in Greek as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's, it's such an interesting thing to note because I, I, we need to continue our discussions about, you know, Christianity and Seneca and Paul and how they all came together because there's some really weird connections that you can potentially draw. And I, I often think about the fact that so much of Seneca's writings, if you take these little snippets, they almost resemble perfectly exactly what Christ said in in a few in a few places. And and it what's interesting to me is that the the New Testament, in a way, it seems as though they were trying to bring the loftiest possible ideas and concepts and and wisdom down to the lowest common denominator in terms of the language, the, the language of the people as above, so below, we need to find a way now that we're kind of on the wrong track here and our language is falling apart to bring these ideas so that people can understand them. And there's something I've got to explore that idea more because I, I don't think I'm fully there yet, but there's something there about that idea. And I think it's very necessary, especially for our times as well. I totally agree. Yeah, but maybe that's for another time. I'd yes, that's right. That. Yeah, yeah, we will. <laughs> All right, I'll just finish with this final section, uh, which is sections 13 and 14. However, I have this further reason for frightening you away from the latter malady, namely that you could only be successful in practising this style by losing your sense of modesty. You would have to rub all shame from your countenance and refuse to hear yourself speak. But that heedless flow will carry with it many expressions which you would wish to criticise. And I repeat, you could not attain it and at the same time preserve your sense of shame. Moreover, you would need to practise every day and transfer your attention from subject matter to words. So that's, um, he says, uh, rabus, that's away from the actual meaning to the words themselves, ad verba. 
but words, even if they came to you readily and flowed without any exertion on your part, yet would have to be kept under control. For just as a less ostentatious gait becomes a philosopher, so does a restrained style of speech, far removed from boldness. Therefore, the ultimate kernel of my remarks is this. I bid you be slow of speech. Farewell. I love that he ends like that because it's exactly what I've been saying throughout this whole time. All of this, there's the little kernel. Just slow of speech. That's right. Now, I've got an interesting um, piece of information about that final sentence. So where he says, that very last sentence before uh, farewell, he says, tardi locum esse te ubeo. I order you to be slow of speech. Now, I looked up this word tardi locum, which is a very, quite a strange Latin word. Um, so tardis means slow, um, and locum is to do with um, to do with speech. It's related to logos. It's related to um, eloquence. That's where the root comes from. And wow. so I looked it up, I think, and um, I thought it might be uh, the only instance of this word surviving in Latin literature. And so I consulted um, Professor Dexter Hoyos, who was my honours Latin supervisor, wonderful man, emeritus professor at the University of Sydney, and he got quite into it. And he thinks it's a <laughs> he thinks it's what we call a hapax legomen, and it's what that means, a word that only survives in one usage from the in our surviving manuscripts. But wow. he went looking for Greek equivalents in the New Testament, and <laughs> he went everywhere. <laughs> I cannot believe that we have access to not only you, but also these professors <laughs> to figure this stuff out. This is so exciting. <laughs> and so, yeah, he went looking in his, um, not just the ordinary dictionaries that I've got, but but his um, other works as well. And he agreed it was a it was a very unusual usage. And it's, and so I'm just going to nerd out here, Simon. <laughs> I, I so love tard, it. I love it. <laughs> tardi loquum. In Latin, and particularly in Latin poetry, the length of syllables is is key. It's 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 the most significant factor about about Latin poetry. And so here, Seneca has coined a word with four long syllables together, which you literally can't say quickly. <laughs> it's a word that you have to speak say slowly. Oh, and wow. isn't that genius? Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. He, he's in, he's he's so insistent on it. He's he's coined possibly coined this word, and it's a word that in that actually forces Lasadius. <laughs> <laughs> to say it slowly. <laughs> wow. So that's just so brilliant. There's so much that we don't get in the English translation. And and this is a whole new world that's opened up when you start to see that he's, yeah, he's adding different flavors and colors to the to this text that really if you're reading it in, in his his native tongue or his his written tongue of uh, of, of Latin, you would you would have a completely different experience. It's so it's so exciting. I love it. And and I think for me, you know, the way to sum up this letter for me is I just love that he's pointing out the importance of of your speech and the importance of getting it right. And he often does this. I love what he says about teaching, how the teacher needs to be kind of like the archer where, you know, the true archer hits the target more often than they than they miss it. And when you're speaking to somebody, you need to be like an archer. You need to know what you're aiming at, where you're aiming. You need to know how to aim at it. You need to know how to pull the bow back. You know, you need to know how to do all of these things that create the 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 perfect harmonious balance of of you know speed or, or or reservation, and that's going to get this person to hear, to truly hear, to truly see, to truly understand, to have something from your speech that they can take away of value. And, 
I think it's a vital conversation for anybody who wants to achieve anything in their life because speech is the way that we get things done. Heck, I mean, you'll know how intense Kai is. I mean, getting Kai to like read over, I hate that I just said like when we're talking about, but getting Kai to read over an email that I'm about to send to somebody and he'll pick it apart and he'll say, you shouldn't say this, you shouldn't say that. This sentence needs to go here. You need to think about how they're going to think about this when they read it. And it's the same thing with our speech. We can be so unbelievably effective in our lives if we decide to get speech right. So I don't know. That's what I take away from this, and I love it. Yeah, and and that speech can also take the form of writing, and that's what Seneca's yeah. sharing is here too. Yeah, absolutely. Judith, you are exactly the right person in the world to take on Seneca's writings. I'm so excited to be doing this with you. We're just up to an hour now, and so I think that we can probably tackle a letter every 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 session because uh, this wasn't a short letter. Uh, and I can't wait to see what we find out over the over the coming uh, coming months slash years. It's very exciting, Simon. Thanks for having me on, and I look forward to the meet up and to the next letter. All right. Okay, so I really hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. As you can tell, Judith is just an absolute powerhouse, such an incredible woman, such a profound knowledge of these languages and of these great classic texts. And it's a real honor to have her in the Walled Garden Philosophical Society alongside other great philosophers. And it's an honor to be able to do this series with her. Just so you know, uh, Judith also writes a beautiful blog on The World Garden. Uh, So just go to theworldgarden.com and you'll find her blog there. It's called Roots of the Garden. And she's actually covering uh, all of the great Western canon of of, of classical texts uh, right on from Plato onwards, uh, which is such a beautiful task to set your mind to. And she's already delivering just some really beautiful writings in there about these great texts. So we'd love to see you there. And also, as I said at the start of the episode, we do invite you to come along to Soul Searching with Seneca this Friday, the 9th of September at 5.30 p.m. PST. That's California time. We'll see you there. You can register via thewalledgarden.com forward slash events, or you can just click on the link in the show notes to go straight to the booking page. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you in the next one. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Walled Garden Podcast. Remember that this show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society. If you consider yourself to be a seeker of understanding, of wisdom, a cultivator of virtue, then we want to learn and grow with you. Just head over to thewalledgarden.com to find out more. We'll see you there and I'll talk to you in the next episode.